Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Now, this is one of those sort of autumn, dreary, rainy, kind of cold days, right? So, uh, but if you are... Um, if you're paying attention to the passage that we just read, it is going to be a morning that will require your attention. So if you need to get that coffee, go get that coffee because we are diving in this morning. Okay, so um, I want to before we do, I also want to uh, just highlight a couple of things. One of the things that I really want to highlight is, of course, next week is our KOA picnic. So we are going to be doing a picnic at the KOA campground off of General Booth at 11 a.m. So we're going to have a worship service there, not here, okay? So uh, that's at 11 a.m. So not at 9, 11, all right? Um, And then we're going to have a picnic afterwards. It is going to be fantastic. It's going to be catered also by uh, Mission Barbecue which is really good. Um, so if you have any gluten-free, gluten-free issues or any, anything like that, they are good to go with that. So um, I'm excited about that. Uh, and also we have another announcement. Uh, in the next few weeks, we are also going to be providing um, Risen Kids Ministry for 4th through 6th grade as well. You can... So... Um, the reason, one of the things that I want to put out there is that in both of these things here, in both the, the, the picnic and with Risen Kids and with the things that we're doing, both of these things can easily feel like it's something that's about you or it's about me. Or like when you show up to an event, maybe you felt like this this morning where you walk in here and you're just kind of you're thinking about what people are thinking about you. You're thinking, what am I going to get out of this? How is this going to help me? right? And so oftentimes what happens in this world, we live in a world that is filled with this consumeristic mentality. You are trained from birth to believe that everything is all about you. You've got people vying for your attention. Buy this. I'm going to sell you this. This is about you, 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 you. Does that make sense? This is the world we live in. But the reality is, is that that is not the spirit through which God has created us to flourish in. In fact, it's a highly selfless, others-oriented type of uh, mentality, paradigm, and approach that God has called his people to not only demonstrate, but experience in him. And he demonstrates this perfectly, even in himself, as Trinity. We're going to talk about that this morning. And so when you, uh, this is some of the encouragement, we're going to talk more about this, but I, even as I make those, uh, those announcements, I just want to put them in and couch them within the language of realizing that this is about others, serving others, praying for others, loving on others. But the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you're deeply secure in the arms of your king. Otherwise, you're going to be looking to others to give you what only he can. Matthew chapter 22. Someone asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Matthew 22 verse 37, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, which means the entire Bible. 
And then, so, so love God, love people. The end. Mic drop. Go home. It's so simple. And yet this morning, I want to show you just how profound it is. Again, in John 13, verse 35, 34 through 35, Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And your love isn't just the ethereal, worldly kind of love where it's just like be nice and kind all the time. Even if people are dying. It's the kind of love that lays its life down to stand in compassion without compromise. That's what Jesus demonstrates. And it's what he's called us to do. It's how he's loved us, and he's called us to love others in the same way. Romans 13, 8 through 10. The Apostle Paul tells the Roman church, Owe nothing, or owe no one anything except to love each other. In other words, there is something you owe. To love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What? For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Galatians even talks about bearing with one another and so fulfilling the law. Of Christ. And so when we talk about obedience at Risen Church, this is what we're talking about. Like we're not talking about living and, or, or we are, sorry, we are talking about living and loving one another as Christ loves us, even with the love of Christ in and through us towards one another. It's not heartless, it's not cold, it's not distant, it's not egotistical, it's not for self gain or vanity, it's about something way more significant. It's about the love of the Father and the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit because you don't have what it takes to do this in and of yourself. Which is why we also have to forgive for one another when we fall short of it. Which is the way Jesus loves us. So this is what sets the true, the true church apart from the rest of the world. This is what all doctrine and theology ultimately point us to. It's the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's not simply about obedience for the sake of obedience. This is about obedience for the sake of love. Flowing out of love. This is the law that all other laws were designed to point us to, which is why the cross is the ultimate fulfillment of the law. You see, Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what he did. God himself in Christ did this, but he didn't just die for us. He also rose from the grave and ascended into heaven on our behalf. Like, that is a profound reality. And so this morning, I want to talk about what it means for us today, what that means for us, not just for our future, but for us today in our present. What does it mean 
that he conquered death in the grave and stands. He's, he's in heaven. He, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. He's ascended. He didn't just die on our behalf. He didn't just rise from the grave on our behalf. He ascended on our behalf. So this morning, we're going to continue through our series called Hunger and Thirst, and it's a series about cultivating deeper desire for more of God, even in a drear, dreary and dry, or sorry, dry and weary land. Wake up. <laughs> and so we've come to this passage in 1 Corinthians 12. We've been in it for a couple of weeks, actually. And so 1 Corinthians 12, about the gifts of the Spirit. But before we dive into this passage or continue through this passage, I want to give a little backdrop for what we're reading. Like one of the things that I loved about seminary was being exposed to thousands of years of dialogue about Jesus and the Scriptures. I loved it. Now, I may have told you before, I didn't go to seminary to be a pastor. I went to seminary because I was like, that's worth paying for. And then God called me in the midst of it. And we were presented with so much information within a four-year window that it's impossible to digest it all. But the point wasn't to fully digest all this information. It was about exposure. It was about wetting our appetites for these eternal truths that we get to feast on for eternity. And so one of the theological conversations that I was introduced to was a doctrine called, ready? Perichoresis. Perichoresis. Now, some of you may have heard me mention this before, and some of you may have already checked out because I just said a word you don't understand. All right? Check back in. I want to encourage you to check back in here because the reason so many people aren't familiar with perichoresis isn't because it's not important, but because it's one of the most powerful and profound doctrines out there. And yet, it's bigger than we can fully wrap our heads around because it's talking about the Trinity. It's talking about who God is in himself. And it's honestly mind-boggling, and yet at the same time, it's so filled with wonder and awe and the majesty of God and his creation. And so it speaks directly to the active operation of the Holy Spirit through the gifts of the Spirit in and through the local church. So the term perichoresis refers to the relationship within the triune God or the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how it informs our relationship with him and one another as well. So this isn't just a theoretical concept, okay? This is an ancient, ancient theology. This, this is, the church fathers were talking about this stuff a long time ago. There's a deep application here, though, because it's not just a theory. It's not just for these, like, smart people that are dead now, right? This is a deep, deep practical truth. So there's deep application for how we relate to God and one another and even how God relates to others in and through us. And so the, the, the word comes from the Greek word peri. Uh, so perichoresis, right? So the first, it, it's peri and choresis. Peri means simply around. It's a Greek word that simply means around. It's often used to describe the way swordsmen would block and move, right? They would call it a peri. You ever seen that? Anybody seen Zorro? You know what I'm talking about? You know, they would peri. 
And it was like these circles, and it looked like almost like a dance. An expert swordsman, when they would block and move and parry, is this like dance, this circular movement that is actually pretty, pretty beautiful. There's almost a oneness that happens. And so parry means around, and choresis literally means to go or come. And it's often used to describe, again, dancing. So it's where we get the word choreography from. And so this is an ancient term that's used to describe the relationship within the Trinity, within the Godhead, within the triune God. You may even recognize some of the imagery that's used to articulate this um, with some images that are on uh, church buildings, old church buildings. You'll see it in stone. It looks like a, a, a rotating wheel with three kind of images. Do we have that picture? I don't think we have it ready. That's all right. That's my fault, by the way. That's not hers. So, <laughs> um, but you'll know what I'm talking about. It's a... Uh, uh, You'll, now you will notice it. I wish I had the picture for you, but that's my fault. Um, but there is a, you'll see these pictures. It's almost like a rotating wheel of three that have become one. And so it's a picture, again, of the Trinity. But this is, again, it, it, maybe you've seen it. But this morning, I want to talk about how this ancient theology directly, again, applies to us today. So let's drop back. And like, I'm talking like way back, like Genesis 1 back. All right? In the beginning was God. The perfect Godhead, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune perfection, the Spirit glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Father, and the Father glorifying the Spirit, perfectly selfless in this Trinitarian expression of love, worship, and glory without beginning or end. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of all that is true and good and perfect and righteous and holy. Three persons in one divine nature, flourishing within the eternal dance of profound oneness and yet not sameness. Complete unity in diversity. And Genesis tells us that this selfless and eternal creator created. And he created humanity. In his own image, man and woman in his own image, designed by the creator to flourish as the creator flourishes. Made in the image of God, but not God. Created to flourish in selfless, God-oriented worship and glory. Oneness and yet not sameness. Unity in diversity. Complementary in design, all for his glory. Created and intentionally designed to worship God and enjoy him forever in the selfless, perichoretic, Godward dance of goodness and glory. That is until we, the created, turned inward upon ourselves. Selfward. Rather than beholding the good leading of our creator, we turned our eyes to another, namely ourselves. We looked to our own glory and away from his. We reached for satisfaction apart from the one who is all satisfying. Rather than beholding and being held, we were emboldened and we rebelled. Now that dance of glory, that dance of glory and goodness and life everlasting continued, but not with us. We were doomed and damned to the eternal death, destruction, and darkness that comes as the just penalty for rejecting eternal life, love, and light itself. But God. Say, but God. 
We're told in Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 6, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and dead is dead. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Look, dead people can't make themselves alive. I don't care how strong your willpower is. Dead is dead. But even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's past tense. That is past tense. That is not what, just what we're looking forward to. It's who we are now. Amen? Risen church. And so this is who we are. It's our identity in the risen and ascendant Christ. It's like the Spirit of God comes to us even in the midst of our sin and rebellion, death and darkness and destruction, and by the authority of Jesus Christ himself says, may I have this dance. It's not merely do you want to be saved from hell. It's not the invitation. It's true. Don't get me wrong. Hell is real. It's bad. You should be scared of it. It is bad. But if you're in Christ, it's not just fire insurance. It's not just what we're saved from, but who we're saved unto. This is about abundant life, everlasting life. And it starts now, not just one day when we die. His rule and reign begins in our hearts the moment we place our faith and hope in what he's done for us. The question is, do you desire him? Do you desire more of him? This is the gospel, that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserve to die. And he conquered death in the grave and he paved the way to eternal life through the resurrection. Eternal life ascendant with the Father. Sending his own spirit to indwell us and change us and recreate us and give us new hearts, new affections, new desires for that which he loves. And it starts now, not just one day when we die. See, Christianity isn't, again, just about salvation. It's about an invitation to dance, to glorify, to magnify, and to testify. It's an invitation into abundant life, and in this life, it's an invitation to partner and participate in the most glorious mission in eternity, which is the Great Commission. This is why Jesus prayed to the Father for his church in John 17, verse 20 through 23. This is the, what's known as the high priestly prayer, and it's really it's Jesus praying over you. Listen to what he says. See if this sounds familiar to some of the stuff I've just been talking about. He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples that are right in front of him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. That's me. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the word may believe or sorry that the world may believe that you have sent me 
The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. There's the purpose. And that you loved them even as you loved me. You see it? Remember after Jesus conquered sin and death, he didn't immediately tell his disciples to go and make disciples right then. He told them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come to them because without the Holy Spirit's empowering and his presence, like all of it's just in vain. But with him, independence upon him, working in and through us, we're able to do abundantly more than we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. This is our commission. And the gates of hell cannot and will not stand against it. So it's important to learn how to live according to the Spirit. Amen? To learn how to dance, so to speak, right? But that's easier said than done, especially when we still have this sinful struggle with the flesh. It's difficult to learn to rely and depend and respond in sensitive humility and wisdom to the Spirit's leading when we're continually getting tripped up by our own self-sufficiency or lack thereof, or just self-centeredness, paranoia, anxiety, did I do this right, did I get this right, did they get it right, did this, frozen, paralyzed, analyzed. This is ultimately the struggle between our own sinful nature or what the Scriptures call the flesh. It's the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And this is what Paul is talking about in his letter to the Galatian church in Galatians 5, verse 16 through 26. It says this, verse 16. But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Because if you're in Christ, you want to glorify him, right? But as Paul said in Romans 7, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I do want to do. It's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Say, in step. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. 
So as we walk through the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, this passage in Galatians is pretty helpful. Like, remember, we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, and we see, what we see here is that it's His Word that points us to His Spirit. In fact, I'd even say if we're going to use the illustration of a dance, then the Scriptures are the cadence in which this dance with God takes place. Right? If you're out of rhythm with His Word, then you're going to be out of step with His Spirit. Because the Spirit points you to His Word, and His Word points you to His Spirit. Okay? So for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to let God's Word point us to His Spirit as we continue through this section in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, and we're going to actually pick up in verse 7, okay? Um, and hone in on really just verse 7 and 8. Because verse all the way through 11, which you just heard, it gives us about nine examples of spiritual gifts. And we don't have time to go through all nine of them this morning. Um, so we're really, what we're going to do is we're going to hone in on verse 7 and 8, but don't worry, we'll get to the others in due time. So look back with me at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, and it says this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, okay? So the gifts of the Spirit are God's great commandment to love in action. Remember, love God and love others, and to do it in the same way that he's loved you. Like, that's a high bar, right? Like, the only way that's even possible is if Jesus loves others through you. And that's exactly what the gifts of the Spirit are all about. Which means this thing is inherently selfless. God, word, and others-oriented. So it's not about being awesome. It's about being Godward in our orientation and outward in our demonstration of who he is and what he's done for us. So that's love God and love others. It's so simple, and yet again, what's happening here is so deeply profound. Again, the thing that trips us up in this is that self-centeredness, which is why it shouldn't be surprising that the gifts of the Spirit often get twisted into just another tool for self-discovery. Many of you may have noticed this. Like it's kind of like a personality test. Kind of gets lumped in with this. Like discover who you are. Right? I'm not mocking. And I've got nothing against personality tests. They're actually really helpful and fantastic. But that's not what the gifts of the Spirit are about. Okay? Yes, the way the Spirit manifests in you will look very different than the way that it does often in other people. That's fantastic. And that's part of the beauty and the unity of his church. But there is a danger here of turning even the gifts of the Spirit in upon ourselves and making it about the self. But this isn't about self-discovery. This is about what the Spirit of God desires to invite you into and do in and through you, whether you think you're good at it or not kind of the point. Like we're even told to even earnestly desire the gifts, which means this isn't simply a test to see if you have it or not. It's a call to hunger and thirst for them and for him, for more of God, more of his presence and power for his purpose in the earth. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in Virginia Beach as it is in heaven, in my life as it is in heaven. Not my will, not my kingdom, not my glory, but yours 
be done, O oh God. Not because we have what it takes, but because you do, and we recognize we need you. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Remember, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, the gifts of the Spirit are the manifestations of His Spirit. See, Christianity isn't about the best you you can possibly be. It's not what it's about. Like that kind of stuff sells books and conference tickets, but to, to a culture who believes salvation is found in personal achievement, everything gets turned into just a tool for self-improvement and ultimately self-worship, including the gifts of the Spirit. And they get turned inward on themselves, self-word, self-ish, self-centered. And we need to have grace for that. This is not about throwing stones, but moving forward for what he's called us to. Because in so many ways, it's antithetical to the true empowering of the Holy Spirit, which is an invitation into selflessness. It's a selfless dance. The Trinity perfectly displays that. It's an invitation into the selfless dance for a greater kingdom purpose. And, and, and it often comes at a cost. But it's not about you. And it's not about me. It's about his glory and his kingdom. It's about his people and it's about his great commission. Now in that process, it's the safest place and most amazing, perfect, beautiful place you can be. Amen? The danger, as we've seen from the entire gospel, is that we say, I don't trust you. I need to do this in myself. I only trust myself. That's the danger zone. But it's when we let go of this stuff and we go to him like this. As John the Baptist put it in John 30, verse 30, or sorry, John 3, verse 30, he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. There's a lot of freedom in that. Whew, there's a lot of freedom in that. And Jesus put it in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And what an honor and a privilege and a joy to partner together in all this. Like, it's, this is what we were created for. But again, what we're going to see is that each gift of the Spirit does carry a temptation to the flesh to make it about us rather than Jesus. So I'm going to highlight this again. This is going to require a lot of mercy and grace. Because if you think you're doing this perfectly, you got a plank in your eye. Okay? This is all, it's a lot of humility here. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else from anything that we're saying, this is what I want you to get. Spiritual gifts aren't just about discovering who you are and what you're good at. They're about hungering and thirsting for who God is and trusting in Him for what He's good at. Spiritual gifts aren't just about discovering who you are and what you're good at. They're about hungering and thirsting for who God is and trusting in Him for what He's good at. Some of the most gifted people I've ever known didn't start that way, or at least you couldn't tell, right? If y'all ever heard the first sermon I ever preached, whew, 
literally one time, the first sermon I ever preached, I said, does that make sense? And somebody in the crowd goes, no. (laughs) This isn't about finding your purpose and identity, though. If you're in Christ, hear me, you already have that. Your identity is in Christ alone. You're his grace-bought, spirit-filled, and beloved child. You're a chosen race. You're a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood of all believers. You're the head and not the tail. You know what that means? You know what that means? It means when you lead the way. It means you're called to lead the way rather than just getting wagged by the world and covered in poop. But you lead the way because you're following the good shepherd. And his way is selfless. It's the way of the cross. And he's given us our purpose. Like if you were really a Christian, you don't need to ask God what your purpose is. He's already told you. Like we've got it. Go and make disciples. Build up the church. This is God's plan A for accomplishing the great commission. The only reason we're here right now, he hasn't come back, is because he's still got lost children that he has not called into his kingdom yet. And we get to move in this and operate and partner together in this. This is how we bring God the most glory and subsequently experience the most joy in this world. Again, God's plan A for accomplishing his great commission is the local church. Now that doesn't mean that we're all called to be pastors, but we are called, all of us, to build up the church as vessels of his spirit and partner together and participate in this amazing call. Again, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each, each, that's all of us. One's not better than the other. We're going to get into this as we continue forward. Later, we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, that Paul says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, because that's what the Corinthians were, they were eager for manifestations of the Spirit, and then he says, so so since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Think about that. Like, you want to see God move in power? Strive to excel in building up the church. And I can tell you from personal experience, that's that he'll do more than you can ask or think according to the power at work within you when that happens. Look, at me, look with me at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Let's look at the first two examples here. We're actually going to hone in on the first one, but we see the first two examples of spiritual gifts, and then we're going to close, for the rest of our time, we're going to close with some helpful guidelines and applications for this, all right? So, verse 8, here we go. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. So what is the utterance of wisdom? Or a more common phrase for this might be a word of wisdom. So what is it? Well, it seems like this is just talking about the ability to give wise and knowledgeable advice in like specific situations, right? Like, we all probably know wise and knowledgeable people. But because these are manifestations of the Spirit of God for the building up of his church, I think that's a too low of a view of what he's talking about here. Now, I want to be careful not to get 
dogmatic on these things because Paul isn't listing hard and fast categories. That's very important for you to understand. Otherwise, you're going to get really confused here. All right? In fact, there's a lot of overlap in the gifts that he's referencing, not only here, but throughout the scriptures. Remember, the ultimate point that he's making here isn't about dissecting each gift into clear categories. His point is to show that there are a diversity of gifts that are given to the church, to each one, and it's all from the same spirit. That's what he's driving home here, okay? And so, that, as is the case also with most things pertaining to the Spirit, we've got to be careful not to miss the majesty of the rainbow because you're too focused on trying to scrutinize each color. We learned this in our series through Revelation, if you walked through that. Okay? And as with a rainbow, there is a lot of over, overlap with the gifts. If you've ever seen a, a rainbow, often the colors, they don't just, there's not like a clear line between them. You're like, when is pink purple, and when is this, like, what, that, it just kind of, and oh, and now it's green. Like, it just, this is, there's a lot of overlap. And so we want to try and, um, this is part of the mystery and the majesty. And often with the gifts, it's a both and rather than an either or, okay? And so we need to try to not get too binary and short-sighted on this, all right? So, um, and yet, and yet, it is important to seek understanding in what it is that he's talking about. Remember, he begins chapter 12 here saying that he doesn't want us to be uninformed. So we can't just skip over this stuff because it might be uncomfortable or a little, little difficult. It's in the Bible for a reason. And so it's clear that he isn't just talking about simple human wisdom here. This is about the Holy Spirit empowering his people with divinely revealed advice into a situation they could otherwise have no real understanding of. Remember, wisdom isn't just about knowledge. It's about applied knowledge. It's about the way we live. And God is concerned about the way we live. Right? So an example could be in Acts 8 where Philip is told by God to rise up and head south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza in the desert. This is early church stuff. The church has just begun, and, and the Great Commission has basically just been launched, and they're kind of just trying to figure all this stuff out, and suddenly God comes to this guy Philip and just says, hey, rise up, go south. Okay? And so when he gets to this uh, road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza in the desert, like middle of nowhere, He comes upon a chariot carrying an Ethiopian eunuch, and it says this. Look with me at Acts 8, verse 29 through 31, or just listen if if you're with me. So it says this, and the Spirit said to Philip, so the Spirit said to Philip, like, was this an impression? Was this an audible voice? Was this a feeling? Was it an internal sensation that he just was leaning into and had developed? The Spirit said to Philip, I don't know, by the way. <laughs> it could have been an angel. I don't, I don't know. But it said, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip, I love this, ran to him and heard him reading. He runs. He's like, there was no question in his mind. He's like, I'm running. Yeah, you know. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. What we know is that the Ethiopian eunuch gives his life to the Lord, gets baptized in water, 
And then it's pretty epic what happens after that. You can go read it, Acts 8. It's kind of awesome. So, and then he takes the word of God down into Africa and actually, uh, church history says, planted one of the oldest churches there are. And so Acts 13, how about that? Acts 13, verse 2 through 3, read with me. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So so again, how did this happen? Was it an audible voice? Was it an inner impression that they all got? Like maybe one of them said, you know, I feel like we should set Saul and Barnabas apart. And then somebody else is like, man, I feel like that too. And then another sense is the same thing. And then, but then they continued to fast and pray about it. They tested it. They weighed it. Okay? And then they commissioned them in the Spirit. Now, my understanding of this is first and foremost from the Scriptures. You need to understand this. This isn't just experientially driven. This is because of the Word of God. Right? Because to tell you the truth, I'm a lot more comfortable so this stuff, this, whoop, this stuff's like, uh, I, just tell me what to do, God. It, like, especially in your word, because I don't know, this is kind of like, what's happening is it's drawing you. You have to be intimate and relational with him. It's almost like he wants a relationship with us or something. It's almost like he's alive or something, right? So, again, my understanding of this, though, is first and foremost from the Scriptures, but I have also experienced things that I would say fall in line with this particular gift of a word of wisdom in my own life. And to be honest, I confess that sometimes I'm a bit apprehensive to share these things, especially with big groups, because inevitably somebody's going to think that I'm crazy. Because, <laughs> yeah, it is extraordinary. But if I boast, I will boast in Christ and in the outworking of his word and his spirit in and through my life. And I cannot deny that he has done so many amazing things and so much more. So take it or leave it, here we go. So for example, when I first got to Virginia Beach for grad school in 2007, I wasn't sure I'd made the right decision. Most of my friends and mentors were in North Carolina. Some of them even were pastoring and teaching at a seminary there. And I felt like God was leading me here to Virginia Beach, but I couldn't quite like put my finger on it. And, and, and it was really hard for me to not second guess things. And so I was starting to get analysis paralysis. You know, I've been there. I was starting to like, like, God, did you really call me here? Is this okay? What am I doing here? Also, this place is expensive. <laughs> And so in the first two days of being on campus at Regent, which is where I went, God revealed himself to me, and he did so pretty loudly. Now, he had already done things in my life that were really loud, so the fact that he just turned the volume up is just nothing less than his mercy. In fact, within the first two days, I had six different people, most of them not even knowing me at all, approached me in one way or another and told me that they felt like God was saying, quote, you are a righteous man whose steps are ordered by the Lord. You will not veer to the right or to the left, so walk confidently forward on the path that he has you on. I want you to take that in. Six different people within a 48-hour window, and none of them knew each other. One of them was a professor who incidentally ended up officiating my wedding. 
But that was my first interaction with him. Others were study group members. Some were part of a local church Bible study that I went to that night at a totally different church. Not a part of anything. And one was just a random guy who was passing me in the hallway. The man walked right up to me. He didn't even ask my name or introduce himself. He just shook my hand and said, I feel like God wants you to know that you're a righteous man whose steps are ordered by the Lord and you will not veer to the left or to the right, but so walk confidently forward on the path that he has for you. It was like the fourth time somebody had said that to me. Finally, I'm praying in a breakout session during class with about five other people that I had just met in this class, and I'm half expecting for it to come again. Like it was like, bow your heads and pray, and I'm like, here it goes. Right? And it did. And then that person said exactly, <laughs> it was like hammering at home, and then they said, I also feel like this isn't just for right now, but for something later, even years from now. Which made no sense to her or to me. Like, how would that even work? Like, how would I know? But, but again, we don't serve a God of confusion, and this wasn't some hidden code that I had to crack, right? That's not what this stuff's about. So I just opened my hands to the Lord, and I treasured it all up in my heart. That was in 2007. In 2014, my wife Hannah and I had been praying about planting a church, and I was even invited to plant a church through an existing church in Virginia Beach. They were going to provide funding, they were going to provide people, they were going to provide resources, but I sensed that God wanted us to go, or wanted, it was calling us to this residency program in North Carolina that was led by many of the men who had initially led me to Christ and mentored me. That was the DNA that I felt like God was saying, I want you to, 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 to partner up in this. But that meant leaving my salaried position in this city and moving my wife and my six-month-old son at the time to raise support and enter a pretty humbling and scary season of uncertainty, all with the objective of just coming back to Virginia Beach to do what I had the option of doing right away without any of that scary stuff. It seemed like a no-brainer. Just why make it harder? Just stay here and do this, right? But I, I couldn't shake it. One night at church, or at a church retreat, actually, we did this like re church retreat, and, and Hannah and I were pulled aside by a young guy we didn't know from another church, and he said he had a vision of us um, during worship, and he, and he saw a vision of us walking down a path, and the path suddenly transformed, and what we were walking on was now paved with old foundational stones from my past. Now remember, this guy had no idea who we were or any of what we were praying about, but I immediately, I was like, he's talking about the path is shifting to these mentors that I had originally had. And he was like, I don't know what that means, but that's what I saw. That's what he said. I don't know what that means. He also spoke into our marriage, but that's for me and my wife. <laughs> a few months later, I was at a prayer meeting back in Virginia Beach, and an older man I didn't know at all pulled me aside. And he said he'd been praying for me in the back of the room. I don't know. I'm like, why are you praying for me? There's a bunch of other people in here. And he says, I had this vision. And I just saw, like, in my imagination, in a sense, I just saw a huge ship, like one of those Mayflower-type boats. And it, it had, like, the sails and the rigging. And it was in a harbor. And it was fully equipped. And it was ready to launch on this great journey. And it seemed ready to go. And I feel like you're that ship. Like, you're equipped and you're ready. 
But I feel like God's saying there's another stop you need to make before the big journey. Like there's some fruit just down the way that you need to pick up before you're sent out. And that fruit is what will make all the difference. Like how, how did he know? And then he goes, I don't know if that means anything to you, but I hope it helps. Of course it meant. My jaw was just on the floor. I didn't know what what to say other than just, yeah, I know exactly what that means. Thank you. And so we then left for Durham, North Carolina and the Summit Church in 2014. And then in 2016, just as we were praying about whether we should head back to Virginia Beach or stay a bit longer, um, again, I, I found myself in this place of uncertainty. We now had two children, and we had gotten accustomed to life in North Carolina. I'd raised plenty of support, and it was a tough road. And it was like as soon as we got to a place where it was like this isn't crazy difficult anymore, the call came, and we were praying over coming back to Virginia Beach. And he, and he, and he seemed to be kind of loud. And my friend Julius calls me as I'm praying over coming back to Virginia Beach. And... and he calls me in the middle of the day, and he says he was just driving down the road, and suddenly I had come to mind. So he starts praying, and he said, man, I just couldn't pray, shake praying over you, and he just wanted to call and encourage me that I was a righteous man, and my steps were ordered by the Lord. He had no idea that he was tapping into a word directly from God for me. And he just, he just thought that he was just calling to encourage me. Like little did he know he was entering into a dialogue of wisdom and affirmation from God that had been planted in my heart nine years earlier. Julius was now the seventh person to suddenly pray that over me. And honestly, there was so much uncertainty surrounding it all. God knew that I needed it. Like what a mercy. Each of these examples could be characterized as words of wisdom. And over the past 22 years of striving to excel in building the church, (laughs) I've been abundantly blessed by this and many other gifts of the Spirit in and through His people. Even just a couple of months ago, Hannah and I were praying with an older couple uh, at a prayer and worship event, and the lady began to pray over us about significant things in the life of our church. She did not even know that I was a pastor. There were things she was praying over that there's no way she could have known. We didn't know her, and she began to pray about that. We'll talk more about that at our, our partner meeting on November 13th. Teaser. Um, because we've seen God move in alignment with a lot of the things that she prayed over then. Now, often when I talk about these things, people tend to just want these things to happen to you. Like you're not necessarily wanting it to happen through you, just to you. But the call here isn't just about receiving, but giving. Do you hear that? Like, it's amazing to have these type of prophetic words, which is what I would call them, these prophetic words spoken over you. But the encouragement here is to desire to be the one speaking the word, not just receiving it. And and that requires a lot of selfless, Godward, and other oriented humility. 
It means genuinely and consistently praying for others. You see, every single time this happens, it comes to people when they're praying for other people. How much are you praying for other people? Because when you tap into God's heart, you're going to tap into God's heart for his people. Asking God what he thinks about them and then having his heart for his kingdom and his people. It means tapping into his heart for others and then praying it over them. And doing your best to take your opinions and preferences completely out of it. And again, that requires, though, the Spirit of God and a whole lot of humility. This isn't about getting God to do what we want Him to do. It's about humbly entering into what He's already doing. Like the guy talking to me about that ship and the fruit, he was like, none of this makes any sense to me. I hope it does to you. If not, I'm really sorry. (laughs) Like, what a precious step of faith. And I'm so thankful he said something, right? Like, and even for the way that he presented it to me. Like, I could have been like, you know what? I'm not sure what any of that means either, but I'll pray about it. And, and I, it could have meant nothing. It could have just been his imagination. Just because something passes through your brain doesn't mean it's from God. Right? But I'd still thank him for praying for me and with me. And yes, that has happened to me a lot before. And that's a completely okay. Yes, people have said things to me, and I'm like, yeah, that's, uh, nope, no, no, not, not registering, but that's okay. Thank you. And, and listen to me. If it's from God, it's not, again, hear this, it's not some, like, code that you've got to crack. That's, honestly, that's a lot of, like, when people talk about this stuff, that's actually more like tarot card demonic stuff. That makes it you feel like you're like in an escape room. Like somebody says something and you're like, man, I gotta figure this out and I don't have time and I'm gonna screw up my life if I don't figure out all the different puzzles. You know? It's not what it's about at all. It's the opposite of that. Remember, the fastest way to quench the Holy Spirit in a church is to operate out of the fear of man and a suspicious, overly critical spirit. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't test and weigh everything, but there is a gracious and even encouraging way to go about doing that without condemning or shaming people for simply stepping out in faith in the process. Okay? And so I'm going to close here um, with just seven brief practical guidelines. All right? The first, the first, number one, are you hungry and thirsty for more of God in your life, in our church, and in our city? Are you hungry for more? Guys, hear me again. I'm not up here like frustrated, like you guys got to start doing it. Like I know God is moving and he has been and I'm so thankful for it. But I want more. I want more. I'm hungry and I'm thirsty because godliness with contentment, as Pastor Tanner talked about, right? It's desiring more of the things that God desires. And in the process, it's the only all-satisfying thing there is. So are you hungry and thirsty for more of God in your life, in our church, and in our city? 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, it says this, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Again, pursue love is where it starts. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Don't look at me, this is, I'm just reading the Bible. This is just the word of God. Acts 2. Or 16 through 18. 
Peter stands up and he tells the crowds that what they're witnessing in this pretty extraordinary moment is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said in the Old Testament, where he says, and this was like the birth of the church here, and he quotes the prophet Joel saying, And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So I would put a word of wisdom in the category, again, of the prophetic, and, and, or, or in that overlap world. We'll talk more about this as we get to chapter 14, but I want to encourage you to consistently ask for the Lord to bless you with this gifting. But remember, there's nothing you can do to force God's hand. This isn't about your will, it's about his, okay? If God chooses not to bless you with this gift, that's up to him, but that doesn't mean we don't ask, right? Like, I pray that God would gift our church with this more and more to walk in the wise application of words of wisdom for the building up of his church. Two, humility. It's a big one. Humility. We must remember that we are dumb sheep, but he is a good and sovereign shepherd. Like, this isn't about you. This isn't about, this is about total dependence upon him. Remember, we're talking about the creator of the universe. Like, if it's from him, you're either going to know it immediately or eventually. This isn't like some demonic tarot card, again, that you've got to decipher or else all hell's going to break loose in your life. Prophetic words aren't like, again, this like paranoia thing. It's a rest thing. In fact, when they've come to me, they've often been, often been in situations where I have been paranoid or anal- analysis paralysis, and they've been moments of rest and ease and reminders that my good king loves these things more than I do, and he cares about them more than I do, and he's with me. Okay? They're God's gracious ways of showering us with his presence and power in love for our building up, not anxiety, or fear. Hear me. You're not called to rely on the gifts of the Spirit to make routine decisions in your life. That'll paralyze you. Okay? Remember, the point here is about receiving the Word. It's about giving. It's not about just receiving. It's about giving. If you live your life paralyzed because you're waiting for that blatant prophetic voice, then you're likely ignoring the wisdom He's already revealed through His Word. Okay? 1 Corinthians 14.3 puts it like this. It says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. May, this, may you be consoled and encouraged and built up in these things. Fear and anxiety is often the result of making things about you rather than Jesus and his church. So if you, if you make this about you, again, it'll paralyze you with fear and uncertainty rather than encouragement and consolation. That's not the Spirit of God. Which leads me to number three. Test and weigh everything. Say everything. Again, that doesn't mean be suspicious and critical of everything. But it also means that not everything that pops into your head is from God. Or what pops into other people's heads is from God. 1 Thessalonians 5.20 And 21 says, do not despise prophecies. Don't despise them. Don't throw it out. 
might make you uncomfortable. Do not, it doesn't get any more blatant than that, right? Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, okay? We'll talk about this more in the coming chapters. Number four, be careful of your own heart motives. Like if you're going to be suspicious about anything, be suspicious about your own heart, okay? Again, the gifts are easily twisted into something self-serving rather than God-honoring and others-oriented. This isn't about attention or impressiveness. It's not about somebody being more important than others. It's not about division, dissension, envy, Galatians 5, right? It's not about that stuff. Be careful of these things, but also be careful not to project your struggles with self-centeredness onto other people. Believe the best and remove the plank from your own eye before you call out the speck in your brother's eye. That's a quote from Jesus, by the way. (laughs) Five, engage in regular rhythms of consuming God's word. Learn as much as you can about God's character and his ways. Consider how God communicated to people in scripture so you can discern his voice in your own life. He'll never reveal anything that is inconsistent with his character as revealed in his word. That's our authority. Okay? Number six, attune yourself to the spirit of God. When you pray, don't just talk. Listen. Write down things that you think he may be saying and test it with his word and with wise, mature counsel that you trust. Okay? Then seven, come to grips with your humanity and be willing to risk being wrong. This is a part of humility. Often the fear of missing it or being wrong is so paralyzing to our egos It's not necessarily a desire for righteousness. Most of the time, I would say that the fear of missing it or being wrong or or any of these things, it's more about our egos. And so then we want to swallow this gift rather than release it for the good of others, all in the name of our own pride. And so we want to recognize that, that just because you think it's from God, it doesn't mean it is. So we want to stay away from saying things like, Thus saith the Lord. Okay? Or this is God's will for your life. Or the Holy Spirit told me this, 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 and this. Or I'm right and you're wrong because God told me so. Now, if his word told you that, that's where our authority is. Amen? But when we're discerning through these things, it's important to say, hey, you know, I I feel like this is what's going on. You're not going to offend me. You're not going to offend me if this is just like I completely missed it. Even preface this this stuff. So unless you've got clear scripture for that, you're waiting in waters of spiritual manipulation. Steer clear, okay? Preface with, again, hey, if this doesn't make any sense, you're not going to hurt my feelings. And if it doesn't hurt your feelings, or sorry, if it does hurt your feelings, then guess what? You've made it about you and not Jesus and his church. Right? So spiritual gifts aren't just about discovering who you are and what you're good at. They're about hungering and thirsting for who God is and trusting in him for what he's good at. This is about dependence. This is about accepting his invitation to dance and shower his love and grace over each other in our city. This is about sharing life in Christ with one another and our city and beyond. 
This isn't just an event we attend. That's not what church is. It's a people we belong with and partner together with in Christ. And so when we gather together, we're not just singing songs and learning about the Bible. We're invited into the undercurrents of heaven and partnering together in the greatest, most glorious commission that the universe has ever seen. The question is, are you hungry and thirsty for more of the one that makes it all possible in the first place? Let's pray.